I want to call your attention now to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 from which we read a few moments ago. And before we read the verses that we will focus on, let me introduce it this way. In the book of Hebrews, we see the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things. In the beginning chapters of this letter, we see Christ's superiority over angels. And then in later portions, we see his superiority over Old Testament priests and Old Testament sacrifices and all of the types and shadows that came before. And, of course, the argument of the letter is how could these who are called Hebrews possibly think of returning to any Old Testament ceremonies when Christ, the fulfillment of those ceremonies, has come and is in full view. In this second chapter, we see something of a of a sub-point, we might say, concerning Christ's superiority over the angels, <clears throat> and that is that he did not come as a redeemer for angels, but as a redeemer for man. He did not take on the nature of angels, verse 16 says, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, human nature, and to fulfill the promises made to Abraham and even earlier to Adam himself. Now, we want to look in particular at two verses here, 14 and 15. Let's read. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that is, took part of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. <clears throat> and may the Lord bless the reading of Holy Scripture. Verse 15 speaks of the fear of death and the bondage that comes to us all throughout our lifetime because of that fear of death. I want to begin then with this question. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to die? You should be if you are lost in your sins, if you are not reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in Him this day, you should be afraid to die. And so that's the first point that I want to 
point out and underscore from these verses before us, we all naturally fear death. We all naturally fear death. Death is a reality because of the sin of Adam, which plunged all of his race, including you and me, into God's curse, namely the curse of death. And we considered that in some detail in the previous hour. Now, when we speak of death and dying, we usually have in mind bodily death, natural death, the separation of the spirit from the body, the spirit leaving the body, the body being left lifeless. And that seems to be the meaning, especially here in this text before us concerning the fear of death. But as we stated in the previous hour, we should understand that the curse of death upon Adam and his descendants also involved spiritual death that immediately occurred in being separated from God and separated from fellowship with him. And death also includes the final separation from God without remedy in the lake of fire. That is called the second death. But again, it is particularly physical death that we speak of here today and in this text. And we naturally fear dying. Death is not a friend. It's an enemy. The Bible speaks of death as being the last enemy. It's a dreadful Calamity. Death is a terrifying prospect. In the book of Job in the Old Testament, death is called the king of terrors. There's nothing more terrifying than this. The Psalms speak of the terrors of death that are fallen upon me. Even secular philosophers recognize how terrible death is. Aristotle called death that terrible of all terribles. He speaks of it as the superlative of all things terrible. We read in history of kings who forbade the mention of the word death in their court, and in their presence. It was a subject never to be brought up. And we see plenty of people today who simply cannot bear to contemplate death, to be reminded of it. They can hardly attend a funeral sometimes. They refuse to view a dead body they, they refuse to visit a cemetery. We all naturally fear death. 
We may express it in one way or another. We may hide it uh, to some degree in one way or another. But the truth is, we avoid it as much as we can. Now, perhaps we should say in some respects there may be a good fear of death. The kind of fear that keeps us from crossing a railroad track as a train is approaching, that's a a good and healthy fear. But even that instinct of self-preservation indicates an avoiding of death as long as we can. Again, look at verse 15. It speaks of them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that every person lives in conscious fear of death every moment of every day of their life. It isn't as if that's the first thing we think of when we awaken and it's all that we think about all day and it's the last thing that we think about at night and so on. Because that's obviously not the case. But it does mean that every person throughout their whole life lives in a state of being liable to the fear of death whenever we do consider the subject. And to the extent that we give thought to death, it looms over us like a dark shadow. And it, in a way, tempers every joy. It is a reminder to us that every joy in this life is temporary. We're going to leave this world. We're going to leave dead. We're going to leave behind a body. This is the bondage that is spoken of here in our text. We are under this tyranny of this inevitable and inescapable end. If you don't think that people naturally fear death, then just wind back the the calendar a couple of years to the absolute panic and horror and hysteria of COVID and people wearing three and four masks just as a little illustration. Why? Afraid to die. What is it about death that makes us afraid? In the terms of 1 Corinthians 15, what Is it about death that is like a sting from a scorpion or a bee and we avoid those things? According to that passage, the reason we avoid death and the thing that is the the sting about death is sin. The sting of death is sin. 
we know that we're sinners. Our conscience bears witness to our, our very soul that we are sinners. And sin leaves us with a guilty conscience, a burden, a weight upon our conscience that, that pierces like a stinger. And we know that our conscience tells us, even though our conscience is defiled, yet it, when it works, it does tell us that we will have to answer to our Creator for all of our sins against Him. We will undoubtedly face an assessment of our life after it is over. You don't have to convince a person of that. Everyone's conscience naturally tells them that. And because we know that we are sinners, there's a sting about death that's painful and we, we try to avoid it. Death will bring us face to face with God, the God whom we have offended, and the God who is the judge over us, who has the power to cast us into everlasting fire as punishment for our sins against him. And so we dread the thought of dying. We're afraid of what lies beyond physical death. And so, let's consider how people address this, this terror, how they cope with it, rather than to deal with it biblically. Some refuse to think about death. How often do we hear people express this kind of thing? I had a conversation just a few days ago along this very line. I just live for today and for and to be a good person. I don't give any thought to anything beyond death. I don't think there's anything really out there. And so people just refuse to even give it a thought. And in order to keep their mind from thinking, oftentimes... They busy themselves with a frenzy of work and hobbies and parties and entertainments, and they never give themselves time to stop and think about death and to think about the great issues of time and eternity. Some people cope with the fear of death by making a joke out of it, by laughing about death. It just becomes a matter of comedy. They never take it seriously. But watch them on their deathbed, and they quit laughing. It's not a funny thing. And yes, as I said a moment ago, some deny that there is any afterlife. They think that they can avoid the fear of death by saying, when I die, there will be nothing in way of, of conscious existence. There will be no afterlife. 
It will be like a dog or a cat that dies and that's the end of me. Of course, to go that direction, they have to deny God altogether. They have to deny his existence. They have to deny everything revealed in the word of God. Have you heard of the ostrich that sticks his head in the sand and supposes that he is out of sight and safe? That reminds me of that position exactly. To believe in some form of annihilation. Some, on the other hand, pretend to make peace with death. And instead of of being afraid of it, they try their best to make death their friend. And they say things like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a normal development of life. No, death is the end of life as we know it. And there are whole uh, systems of health care and providers of health care who take this approach. Death is... Is, is normal. Death is natural. Listen. Death is not natural in our created state. There was no death when God created Adam and Eve in a perfect world. Death is an intruder. And though it's natural to us now, that's only in a fallen state. Death is an intruder. Death is a terrorist. Death is a spoiler. Death is a destroyer. It's not a friend. It's not something to take lightly. You know, we read in the book of Isaiah that there were some in Israel who claimed to have made an agreement with death. We're on on the same side as death now. We have a covenant with, we've made an agreement with death and the grave so that they might avoid it, at least for a long time. What they were saying was, death isn't going to come, it's a long way off. We're not afraid of death. And that's about as foolish as many people today. Listen. Death is coming. Death is inevitable. And death has a remarkable success rate. 100%. Some think that they can tame the terrorist of death. They think that by focusing on it, they can remove its fear and and neutralize its stinger so that it won't hurt, that they can break its bondage. And so some people go into this uh, Halloween event year-long. A few years ago it was popular to look like death and dress like death and put on makeup like death. Does that make death any less of a sting? 
No. And any unhealthy fascination with death is surely from demonic influence. And last of all, in this, in this list, some avoid the fear of death by making heaven the destination for everyone by default. And that, beloved, is the message that is given at almost every funeral. And I've heard quite a few in the past few years. I was actually just in shock the other day when I heard a minister say something like this. Mr. Smith has not gone to heaven because he was a good man, but because the righteousness of Christ was imputed unto him. That is such a rare... In fact, I don't think I've heard anyone say that. I went up and shook the man's hand. said, thank you for preaching imputed righteousness at the grave. <clears throat> but most people think like and act like that all you have to do to go to heaven is die because that's where everybody goes. And I sometimes wonder if the people of this world and unbelievers are envious of believers and they want to imitate the peace and the calm and the comfort that believers have and they try their best to imitate it themselves. Well, we all naturally fear death, or we should. The fear of death is normal. Don't deny it. Don't try to escape or hide from it. I tell you, you should be afraid to die as long as you are in your sins, in God's sight. Now, the question then that we want to address in the time that remains is this. Is there any way, any legitimate way to be delivered from this fear? Is there any way to be relieved of this fear and freed from the bondage of the fear of death? Let us look again at our text, verse 14. For as much then as... The children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now, who are the children in view here? Well, it's the children of God. It's God's elect. It is those that are spoken of as being the many sons of verse 10. And those who are sanctified, verse 11. Those that are called brethren, Verses 11 and 12, it's the same ones in view here. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he that is Christ, who is the subject in view here, also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood, that 
through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Oh, these are marvelous and precious and profound words. The eternal Son of God came to this earth, came into this world as a man, as a partaker of flesh and blood, by which we understand he was a full person, a full human personhood. And as God, he could not die, but as man, he could die. And through his incarnation, he was a partaker of death. And he humbled himself to our condition. Except for sin, he knew no sin, he committed no sin. But in every other way, he's like us, as a man, as a person, as a human being. And he came under the bondage of death to save us from our bondage of death. He suffered the sting of our sin as it was imputed to him, so that he might deliver us from the sting of the wages of sin, which is death. Now, look carefully at our text. There's two things that are said to be accomplished here by his death. First, in verse 14, a destruction. And secondly, in verse 15, a deliverance. He destroyed the devil who had the power of death and he delivered the children, that is, those whom the Father gave him to save, those whom he calls brethren. Now, there is some interesting wording here. The devil is spoken of as the one who had the power of death. In what sense did the devil have the power of death? Well, certainly it was his instigation and his tempting of Eve that introduced sin into the world and introduced death as the wages of sin. Furthermore, as sinners... We are in Satan's family under his moral leadership. In John chapter 8, those who are lost are spoken of as serving their father, the devil. He is our father in terms of moral condition. We possess the family traits of Satan, in other words, of rebellion against God. He has the power of death in the sense that 
inasmuch as we are subjects of death and subjected to death, we are in his kingdom, his kingdom of death and darkness. Let me remind you of the words of our Lord that are so fitting here from Luke chapter 11. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. That's a description of Satan. He's like a a king with his palace that's carefully guarded and kept. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. That's not true peace. That's, that's a counterfeit peace. That's the peace that Satan gives to many. But, it says, when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils or his goods. As subjects of death, we are in Satan's kingdom of darkness. We are in his palace. He's called the God of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. But we should not for a moment think that by saying here in our text that the devil has the power or had the power of death, that his power was omnipotent or that he was ever sovereign over anything. Only God is that. Satan's power is limited. Any power that he ever had was delegated. Satan never held the keys of death. The only power that he had was in the words of an old writer, John Trapp, as the hangman has the power of the gallows. You know, the hangman isn't the the judge. The hangman isn't the king. He's only the executioner. And that's the power that the devil had over death before Christ conquered him. We see that power over death so clearly in the book of Job and in the whole story there how that Satan was allowed by God to kill Job's children but he was not allowed to kill Job himself his power was limited and delegated you see God ultimately holds the keys of death Christ the mediator holds the keys of death. We read in the Old Testament, God says, I, even I am he. and There is no God with me. He's the only God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Again we read, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. The ultimate power of death is in the hand of God. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. But Satan is the immediate executioner, we might say. He's the hangman that has the power of the gallows. 
So, very quickly here. How is the devil destroyed? The text tells us it's through death. Through death, Christ destroyed the devil who had the power of death. And there's two parts to this destruction. Knowing Scripture as we know it, we might say, well, the, the destruction of death was in the resurrection of Christ. But you notice the resurrection is not specifically mentioned here. It's death. It's through death he destroyed him that had the power of death. Now, certainly whenever his death is mentioned, his resurrection is, is close at hand and we might say is implied. But think, first of all, how that the devil and death were destroyed by Christ's own dying, by his very act of death. He entered into death. He passed through death. He did not avoid it. He didn't destroy death by avoiding it, but he entered into it. You know, those who seem to avoid death for a while, we say they cheated death. Well, our Lord did not cheat death by avoiding it. He conquered it, destroyed it by passing through it triumphantly. But oh, what a costly fight it was. He was wounded and he suffered. And he died. He was brought into the dust of death. He took the sting of death. When he took the sins of his people. As his very own. And died because of them. And died as a curse. Died forsaken by God the Father. While he was on the cross. And his dead body was put in a tomb, wrapped up and put in a tomb. And it is in his death that he put our sins away and removed the claim that death had upon us. You see, death has had the claim upon us because of sin. Christ put away the sin, and so death no longer has a claim. That's how he destroyed the devil and his tool of death. He not only destroyed death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, the devil himself. So that death no longer holds power over us. He destroyed it in his death. And John Owen famously titled the the work that he's known for with these words, the death of death in the death of Christ. Christ, by his death, put death to death. He removed the sin that brings death. And so death is no longer 
operative. That's the meaning of destroy here in verse 14. It means to render inoperative, inefficacious. The lexicon even uses the word unemployed. (laughs) It's the same word that is translated abolished in 2 Timothy 1 when it says Christ has abolished death. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so he did. In the words of Romans 8, he condemned sin in the flesh when he died in his flesh. Well, that's how he destroyed the devil and death. Number one, in his own death. And yes, number two, Closely related in his rising again from the dead, in his victory over the grave. In the words of Romans 6, death has no power over him any longer. He didn't just avoid death. He didn't cheat death. He passed through it and arose in victorious triumph. He fully conquered Death and the devil in his resurrection. He is the mighty conqueror. Again, in the words of of Luke 11, he overcame the strong man. He overpowered him. He prevailed over him, took his armor, and divided the spoils. He spoiled principalities and powers, Colossians 1 tells us. So much so that he could say at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He could say to the disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In him is life, not death. He died and rose again, and death has no more claim upon him. And all who believe on him have everlasting life. The word of God tells us. We who were once in bondage. This bondage of death. Bondage of sin. Which leads to death. Are now by faith in Christ, brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans 8 says. What a change from bondage to liberty. And it's by believing in Him. So I want to ask you this. We began with the question, are you afraid to die? And we come now to this question. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Do you look to him for righteousness and all that comes from him in way of eternal life? That's the question I urge you to ponder today. But I must say, just a bit more here before we close and I'll say it as quickly as I can believers in Christ 
have nothing to fear in death. In union with him, we have died and risen again already. In Christ, we are alive with him forevermore. In Christ, we conquer death. In Christ, we swallow up death in victory. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Christ, the stinger of death has been removed because sin has been put away, removed from our record before God. And so physical death without the prospect of having to answer to God for all of our sins, that makes death to lose its dread and its sting. In death, believers simply go to be with Christ, which is far better than the very best thing that this world could ever offer. Let me give you some some quaint words from Thomas Watson. He says, The wheels of death's chariot may rattle and make a noise, but they carry a believer to glory with Christ. (laughs) Death is nothing more than the rattling wheels of the chariot that takes us to be with him Or Richard Sibbs puts it this way, using another illustration. Death is only a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. I like that. A grim porter. Death is the doorkeeper in that sense. But what's beyond the door is the palace of the Lord. Christ, in his resurrection, transforms death for us who believe in him so that it is more often in in the New Testament called sleep. While the body rests in the earth, the spirit is at peace in the presence of Christ. Are you afraid to go to sleep? No, we look forward to sleep. No reason a Christian shouldn't look forward to death. And you see that in Paul's writings in Philippians 1. He had this longing to be with Christ, to pass through death. Death cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's nothing to fear in death if you are in Christ. And believers, listen, believers can go so far as to taunt death. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy victory? Or O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Christ enables us to be that bold and to put death to shame because he has conquered it and we have conquered it in him. Mr. Spurgeon said, The Christian who contemplates death with joy is a living sermon. So I ask again, are you afraid to die? 
If you're lost in sin, you should be. But if you are in Christ and have his righteousness to cover your sin, then you need not be afraid of death. I urge you to look to Christ then for all that you need for eternal life. I want to close with words of C.H. Spurgeon in an illustration that he used more than once. But he shows here that the folly of those who die in their sins outside of Christ, unprepared. I have heard of a certain king who had a jester or fool, we would maybe call him a comedian today, to make fun for him as kings used to have. But this jester was no fool. He had much sense, and he had thought wisely about eternal matters. One day, when he had greatly pleased the king, his majesty gave him a stick and said to him, Tom, here is a stick which you are to keep till you see a bigger fool than yourself. And then you may give it to him. One day his majesty was taken ill, and it was thought that he would die. And many went to see him, and Tom also went and said, What is the matter, your majesty? I am going, Tom, I am going. Where are you going? asked Tom. I fear it is a very long way, said the king. And are you coming back, your majesty? No, Tom. You are going to stay a long while then? Forever, said the king. I suppose your majesty has a palace ready over there. No. But I suppose you have provided everything that you will need there if you are going such a long way and will never come back. I suppose you have sent a good deal on and got everything provided for on ahead. No, Tom, said the king, I've done nothing of the kind. Here then, your majesty, take my stick, for you are a bigger fool than I am. And if there is a man here, Spurgeon said, who has made no provision for eternity and who has no mansion, no abiding place, no treasure, no friend, no advocate, no helper there. He is a gigantic fool, be he who he may. The Lord give that fool a little sense and lead him to confess his folly and look to Jesus who is Savior, friend, and heaven all in one.